Father, we thank you for your word and particularly we thank you today for the revelation. Uh, And we know that there's a a lot in the revelation that is hard for us to understand and hard for us to picture. And so we pray that you would open uh, understanding for us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would bless us and guide us in your uh, truth. And uh, Father, that we would be blessed, uh, that you would show up our lives and this world in a different way to us and open our eyes to you and what you're doing in it. Uh, I pray that you would bring that blessing uh, that you promise for those who read this revelation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read from Revelation 13, uh, starting at verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all authority, all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven on to the earth in view in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on the on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had that mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. Okay, I think we all understand that pretty well. That was a joke. Um, You would know that that is a a subject, especially the mark of the beast, the number of the beast, which has caused a lot of people to have lots of discussions over the last couple of thousand years. And uh, lots of uh, what people today call conspiracy theories, correct? Well, today I'm going to tell you that it's true. There's a conspiracy. But we'll get into that in a minute. I just want to start by baiting you to keep you awake and have you thinking. But I want you to tell you, we're in a part of the scripture. Now, you, know, you may remember we preached on the first part of Romans, uh, Revelation 13 some time ago. Uh, but, um, uh, and, you, so, and I'm not going to go back over that because you can look it up on the podcast if you haven't listened. But I want you to see one thing. When we're talking about a whole lot of beasts and a whole lot of dragons and a whole lot of evil and all of that... It can seem very dark. And I want to remind you of something that happened at the start of Revelation, particularly chapter 4 and 5, when it got into the nitty-gritty of this vision, is you had God on the throne ruling over all things, and you had Jesus the Lamb, the one who was saved, standing at the right hand of the Father. Know that that hangs over all of the evil. It's a bit like if you watch the news sometimes at night, you might say there's a whole lot of evil. Well, just remember that there's a throne too. And there's a God who's ruling over all things. You get that? God's ruling over you. I'm answering five questions today. Uh, The first is, what is the second beast? Second, what does the beast try and do? 
Thirdly, what is the number of the beast? What's that all about? Fourthly, what's the mark of the beast all about? And the last one is the most important one. Who is like the Lord? Who is greater than him? Okay. We're going to go through those questions. Sorry, this is going to take a while. Okay. The dragon, just to go back a little bit, the dragon is Satan. And he has an image, which is the first part of chapter uh, 13, which is a heavenly, sort of in the spiritual realms, an image. And then today we come to the third part of what some people call the unholy trinity, uh, the beast who is on the earth. He represents the earth and people in the earth and he, his number is man. He, is, he represents humanity in their evil. Not When we talk about he represents the world, don't think of the word world to mean the earth, planet earth, with the green trees and things like that. The world, as John talks about it, is humanity gathered together, opposed to God. It's not his people. Yeah? It, it's, he says, do not love the world and anything in it. He's not, he's not talking about, uh, you know, as I say, the, the creation. It's talking about the people of this world who are gathered together opposed to God. Now, you heard a bit of it last week in a prayer in Acts 4 uh, when Bruce preached, and I'm not quite sure what he said about this, so I don't have to correct him. But he said in Acts 4, you know, Peter and John, they get chucked out for healing somebody and then they come back together in the believers and the first thing they do is pray. And in the middle of this pray, prayer, they said this, Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father, uh, your servant, our father David. In other words, Psalm 2. David wrote Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, he wrote this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Actually, let's put the conspiracy word right up front. If you read Psalm 2, it says this. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's at the heart of this chapter 13 of Revelation. The nations conspire against who? The Lord and his anointed one, Jesus. Okay? The nations of this world. It is a conspiracy. Not just a theory, by the way, this time. This is a fact. A conspiracy fact. Conspiracy means this. It means a, it's kind of it has this word of group breath, common breath. It is people speaking out with one voice, one message, and that message, that one voice, right, is actually called the world. In this case, uh, that one voice is spoken by the world or by the second beast, which are the same thing, right? And what do they do? They angrily plot in vain to rise up, they are totally united in this, against the Lord and against his anointed one. The world, that is those people who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, are opposed to God. And there is generally rulership uh, which gathers together and plots to replace God, to overthrow God and to sit on his throne. That's the guts of the conspiracy. Does that make sense? I really want you to say, do you get what I'm saying here? 
Okay, ungodly humanity is not neutral. It opposes God. It's enemies of God. And in one sense, this began in the Bible. The first great conspiracy you see is at the Tower of Babel. They all gather together. They have one common cause. What is it? To build a tower. Why do they want to build a tower? Well, perhaps they're insecure, but why are they insecure? They're trying to be God. They're trying to be like God. They're trying to replace God with something magnificent. Okay? So they plot to overthrow God. They do this vainly. Why do they conspire in vain? Why do they plot in vain? Do you know, if you are plotting to overthrow the living God who created everything and sit on your throne yourself, you are vain. You are extremely foolish. Okay? I'll talk more about that in a while. Okay. So, the world, the second beast, that is, is trying to be God. And this world, I'm try- what I want to try and do is help understand what is the nature of this world or this, this beast in our world. It believes, humanity combined, believe that they have an incredible wisdom, uh, an incredible power, and they, uh, for a start, the world decides what is true without God, who is truth, by the way. Do you understand the foolishness of that? The world tries to understand what is moral, what is allowable without God. So if they are trying to understand what's moral without God, they will always come up with the opposite to God, won't they? If God creates male and female, they'll say, well, we're going to do it a different way. That crazy talk, you know that stuff, right? Uh, if the world, the, world must, the world believes it has great wisdom, it believes it has great power, it can change the world. Yep. We can, if we all get together, that's his thought, we can stop all war and disease and everything if we all get together. Do you know that's not true? <laughs> the more the world tries to get together, the more wars there are. You know that? Because it, it, that thought would work if there was no sin in the world. But because people are opposed to God, right, you can't actually change the world. <coughs> Do you know kids are taught that at school? You can change the world. So there's 8 billion kids in the world are all going to change it. Is that really true? Without God. The world believes that they can have true pleasure without God. Our pleasure is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that is the greatest pleasure. And a great lie of the devil, or the, which is in tune with the world, by the way, is that you can find better pleasure than God will give you in the ways that it designs. And therefore, what will that pleasure look like? Well, it'll be opposed to God's moral law, won't it? God says, this is how you have pleasure. Well, let's do the opposite. From the time of Adam and Eve, the time that they rejected God and they rejected his wisdom, humanity has created a system of life and belief which does not have God in it. Do you get what I'm saying there? Since the time of Adam and Eve, humanity in saying, we don't want your way, God, 
has created a system and a, a belief which does not have God in it and logically it ends up opposed to God at every point. And it's all vain. It's pointless. It's impossible. Just think about this, right? I don't know how many... I think you've got something like 75 trillion nerve cells in your body. I don't know how many atoms make up each of those nerve cells. But you are incredibly complex and you, every one of those electrons spinning around in an atom, right, and every cell and every part of your body is held together at every moment by God. Right? You are completely held together from, by him. For you to oppose him is absolute stupidity. Can you see that? He's holding you together. That's just one little aspect. It is the height of foolishness and pride and it is also the character of the world and of the second beast to do that, to put itself in the place of God. The world believes that it has great wisdom in itself. But Revelation 13 makes it really clear. The second beast gets its ideas from the dragon. He introduced sin to the first couple. Adam and Eve didn't make up the idea of sinning against God. It was introduced to them. And the world's thoughts are perfectly in line with the devil. Later on, you get this picture. Sorry, it's got lots of pictures in the the Revelation. of uh, It actually has the world as a a great prostitute riding on the back of the devil, riding around. The, The devil takes the world where he wants to go. Right? Regardless, it is all rebellion against God. So this world has great plans and desires, this group thought, which sound wise and noble, and behind those plans and thoughts and abilities and resources is actually the devil driving a great philosophy or ideology or whatever. Ideology is probably more the word because ideology comes from idolatry. The world's opposed to God as the powers of darkness make it so. So, the earthly rulers gather together to make their plans and exercise their pathetic wisdom and to honour and glorify themselves and they're actually carrying out the devil's agenda all along. So the rulers, the governments, the kings, the leaders of the world, those who do not trust in Jesus, together make plans to dethrone God to put themselves on the throne and that is the great conspiracy. A common breathing out of hatred towards God because they want to be God. And that began in Genesis 3. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is the world and this is what the second beast represents. It's not pretty. And what Christians can't do, right, is suddenly go, oh yeah, well, that's okay because we vote for this side of government and they're the Christian ones, right? So what we're saying is, we don't trust in the world, so we're going to trust in this part of the world. Okay? As our friend said while we were away, great quote, he said, I've come to realise that Liberal and Labor are different cheeks on the same bum. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, well, they have a common purpose. And it's not the things of God. Do you understand that? Sorry. 
Now, I just want to jump ahead, way ahead now, just in case you're getting worried about this world being very powerful. I want to jump ahead to something far more frightening. Not. The Battle of Armageddon. Do you know what the Battle of Armageddon is? All of the people of earth gather together to have a war against God. <laughs> How stupid is that? Just imagine every country on earth, China and US, get together and get all their tanks and all their bombs and their bombers and their fighter jets and they're going to fight God. Hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna overthrow the king. There is, sorry, in the Bible there is no bat- battle of Armageddon. Did you know that? They gather and then they're just consumed by the fire of God. He overthrows them by his word. Bang. There's no war. There's no battle. Don't worry about that. Because it's utter stupidity for humanity. Just imagine, I can shoot God with a gun. Like, he's everywhere and holding everything together. How, yeah. You understand the foolishness of humanity to believe that they have potential to overthrow the sovereign, ruling God who is working out all things in accordance with his purposes. Can you see that? I just wanted to jump to the end there so that you can get a bit of a picture here. Don't, don't get worried about this world, this beast. It doesn't get anywhere. Okay. So the world, the second beast, do you understand what I'm saying firstly? This is who he is. What does he try to do? Well, ultimately, there's one thing he tries to do, and it's, that's to try and get people to worship him. He wants worship. The world wants to be worshipped. And he does it through deceit. Uh, he does it through uh, miraculous signs by shows of power. Um, he, uh, he, when I say he, I mean the world, okay, tries to show, to, to create a sense of worship. Like with the Tower of Babel, they wanted to worship humanity and all their ability. Have a look at us. Right, The world comes and says, if you see the military power of the world, you'll worship it because of what it can do for you. It can protect you. When you see the incredible power of people's deep brains with science, well, you'll worship. Because you, you know, you can lengthen your life. No. God has numbered your days. Yeah? Okay. But you see, what the world tries to do is to get us to marvel at the achievements of mankind without God. We can put a man on the moon, the moon that God made. Yeah. Can you see the irony of our glory there with the abilities that God gave us? God created everything. We don't have potential outside of him. If we band together, everybody, we can fix the climate disaster, can't we? That's what... I don't think there's a night on the news where we don't hear that, right? And we can fix the environment because we can do anything. We can achieve what we want. We can achieve our dreams. No. Do you get what I'm saying? That is this worldly thinking where we replace God. Do you know God's in control of the environment? He is. Right. It, you see, it's an idolatry to be worshipped and to be trusted. What this 
what the world desires, the beast, is to be worshipped. To be astonished at. There's one point in the Revelation where John sees this picture of the world and it says he's astonished or he marvels. And the angel says, don't be astonished. Don't worship the world. Don't lift it up to a place where it shouldn't be. Don't see its great towers and its light shows and its parades of military strength and the Olympic Games. I love the Olympic Games. I just want to show you the incredible ability of humanity. Do you know, have you ever watched the 100 metres final and the 200 metres and then there's a marathon and there's all the ones in between? Do you know, this is true, our mongrel dog Pebbles could win every single race, has already the potential to win those. Every single one of them, from the marathon to the 100 metres. She's faster. And she's kind of half this and half that. <laughs> Just so you want to put in context the great ability of mankind. Sorry, that's not something. But you see, the world wants to be worshipped through all it's achieved. The music, the arts, the culture, the beauty, the machinery, the great potential of man. Worship us above God. That's what the world says. The great cities, the great monuments, the great idolatry. Honour, it's okay, by the way, to honour humanity for what it is. The Bible teaches us to honour, not to worship. Okay? It's okay to honour, I mean, some of these things, but don't lift up man above God. That's a different thing. Because, you see, the, the intellect that took to create these things is a gift from God. So isn't it right that we honour God for that and not say it's about the worship of ourselves? Because the worship of these things above God is futility. It's like a bloke who came to our church once uh, years ago. He was a homeless guy. And he told us afterwards that he had the ability, he had, got, he had this special revelation of how he could change the whole world and make everything good and right and fix all the problems of the world. And then he asked us for some food because he didn't have enough money uh, to buy the food. But one day he was going to change the world. I'm telling you this. The thought that we're above God is futility. Okay. So that's what the second beast is and this is what the beast tries to do to create uh, worship for itself. What's the number of the beast? 666. We all know that. What's it mean? Um... Uh, there's not definite answers, but there are some. There's a, there's a vibe here, and I'm just going to go with this. Seven's the number of perfection in the Bible, right? Yep, seven's God's. Seven is the number of God's revelation, the number of God. It's three times holy. Seven, seven, seven would be perfect. Holy, 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 perfect God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is seven, seven, seven. If you picture it like this, the number of the beast falls short at every point. It's six, six, six. Right? The number of evil. It fails at every point. It never comes up to God's perfection and beauty and holiness. Right? Um, Because you see, we've just had the chapter which talks about this unholy trinity. uh, The the dragon, the beast, the second beast, the 666. And then you've got the trinity of God. Because the devil always tries to mimic God's perfection. The devil tries to mimic him. But he always comes up short. So the 777 is perfection and 666 falls way short. Let's just go with that. But um, 
hey, everybody else with the theories could be right. I'm not being uh, there. But, but understand this. It is the number of man. We are told that. See? It's the number of humanity. It says that at the end. Yeah? It's, it's not the number of God. It's not even the number of uh, necessarily thinking spiritual things. It actually signifies man. So whatever the 666 is, it it represents humanity fallen short of God's glory. It doesn't reach him. Okay. So if that's the number, I hope that just makes a bit of sense without being too uh, concrete in what we're saying. What's the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast seems to be a sign given by the world which shows that people belong to the world, to this beast which is the world. Now, also know that right throughout the Revelation, there's a mark that God puts on those who belong to him, and they are safe and they're his. Just have that in mind as well. Okay, but there's some sort of mark given that shows that people belong to this world. And, you know, it goes, there's only one thing which this jumps to immediately to show this mark. Do you know what it is? Buying and selling. It's money. Money. Did you see that? It, it, it didn't jump to a whole lot of other sins. What gives the world power? What gives the beast power? It's the vain thought that something can bring more pleasure, that something can bring more achievement, that something can bring more security. What is it? Money. Isn't it? Yep. That's at the heart of the world system. If you actually just... Uh, I'd really love you to go away and think about this. What's at the heart of what the world believes strength comes from? Money. Is that true? Money. Money makes the world go round, people would say. It's the only thing that the second beast uses to try and control humanity in this passage. Do you see that? It uses money. The rulers of the world are always trying to control money because money controls everything. Supposedly, unless God's ruling over all things. And, and you know the Bible says the money and people say money is the root of all evil. No, it's, it's the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah, which means the love of money causes the trust of money. I trust in money for, to keep me safe. You need a superannuation policy. Why? So you have security when you're old. That's a, a, a government-demanded love of money and trust in money for the future. Okay? Uh, it's central... Sorry, I'm not having a go at superannuation here. I'm just giving the example. Don't get me wrong. Okay, right. I'm not going to go all crazy on you here. But central to a life without God as far as the beast, the second beast demands it, is a reliance and a worship and a trust in money. If you have enough money, vain thinking here. If you have enough riches, you are powerful. Therefore, you don't need God for your pleasure. He's the fount of all pleasure. He's the fount of all security. He's the fount of everything. You see, in his workings, money is at the heart of it. Does that make sense? I do want to encourage you to go home and read 1 Timothy 6. I know we've talked about it before, but 1 Timothy 6, just do this in your... I'm going to read part of it in a minute. And that's the bit where Paul does say that money is the root of all evil. 
Okay? And I want to see here. It is the natural thought in our life, right, that we cannot live a full and free and joyful life without money. It's a natural thought that we cannot live a full and free and joyful life without money. Is that true? No, it's not. It's at the heart of the world's philosophy. Okay. The love of money, the trust in money. Paul says, right, in 1 Timothy 6, 5, that some people believe that godliness, being godly, coming to church, being Christian, is a means of financial gain. Okay? If you follow God right, you'll be rich. Some people think that. He's talking about evil people. People who got mixed up. So that would mean that the gift of God to humanity is to give them money so they can trust in something apart from him. That's senseless. Do you get what I'm saying? Sorry, I'm taking a sidestep here. But I, I just want to say this. I think the, pros- the prosperity gospel, the problem with it is not just that it's a misuse of scripture or that it rips people off. I think it's worshipping the wrong God. That makes it a bigger problem when you worship money above God. So I'll I read this passage. I, I'm coming back to Revelation. What I want to see is at the heart of the world system, the one thing it goes to is buying and selling money because that is the way that the beast controls the people. And then we'll talk about that a bit more. But Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain compared to money. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Did you read that passage? Just understand this, what he's saying. I'll read it again. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now that's bad enough, but then he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But then the next bit says, it's even worse, it is through this craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's actually, money has actually caused people to walk away from God. Why? Because it replaces him. You don't need God when you've got all this money, right? You've got everything you could ever want. No. But that's the thought of the world. Do you get that? They've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with all sorts of pangs, with all sorts of pains. Man, I want that for my kids. Gee, I want them to be rich so that they can be full of pain. And Yeah. I want them to lose their faith. If you teach people to love money, you'll teach them not to need God. And they do need God. Okay. You know that Jesus spoke about this many times, don't you? You can't love God and money, he says. You can't serve both. The desire for money, the promises, the fulfilment, the satisfaction, the security that comes, comes from the beast. Okay. This sounds very strong. But what I want you to do is this. Think about money for yourself and the way that it controls your thoughts. And don't let it control you. Don't let your desire for money 
become the thing of security and worship and hope and pleasure, get enough money, you know, the retirement thing, you'll sit on the beach and drink pina coladas and everything will be just great until the mosquitoes come. It's not, it's not there. It's not found in those things. Now, okay, so I've stepped aside to look at money and just to see that this is the way the beast controls people. I'm hoping I'll get to the end of the sermon sometime. The beast puts a mark on humans, all who worship the beast, that is, to control their use of money. Some sort of mark it says on their right hand or forehead that allows them to buy and sell. And if they don't have the mark of the beast, if they don't actually worship the beast, then they can't have money for themselves. They can't exercise their use of money. Okay? So the beast exercise, he controls the worship of money, which is the love of money. So, is this the way we're heading with the internet and banking and computer chips in our right hand and stuff? Well, quite possibly, actually. Yeah, I think that's quite possibly the way. I don't really know. It could come in another way, but it is going to come. Okay? But the fact doesn't change. The beast, the world, the rulers try to control our money. So what is the answer? Get all your money out of the bank, pull up your floorboards, stash it in there. We're in a house with a cement slab, so we're in trouble. But is that the answer? Well, what's saying is, if you do that, you're saying, my trust's in money, but it's in cash. It's not in internet cash. That's no change. It's still the trust in money. Do you get that? It's still thinking that it's the answer. It's no change. It's still the world. Our answer is not to fight the rulers. It's not to hide it all away and not to hide away from them. It's not to use the tools of this world because, you see, what it's saying is love of money is not the answer. Don't trust it. Refuse the mark of the beast. Yes, that may come for us. Maybe one day. Maybe. I don't know. We might refuse a computer chip shoved in our wrist. Who knows? That might be it. Might not be it. But still refuse it because, you see, we have to not go down the ways of the world. If that means we lose all our money, well, what have we lost, really? We might be at this place where all we can do is scratch together the necessities of life and pray things like, give us today our daily bread. The way we were taught to pray. What did Paul say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. That's what he said. Yes, there's a conspiracy. Do you know there's a conspiracy to take over your money? To desire to control you, yep. But we're not those who trust in money. Yep. It's like, just imagine, someone came and said to me, we're going to take away all your broccoli. I'm going to, hey. Is it that bad? (laughs) And your cabbage. Yeah, right. Think of it like that. We're going to take all your money. I think it's going to be better. Okay. Broccoli's not evil, all right. Okay. It's not a loss to lose our power that money brings, especially if it drives us to trust in God. A few years ago, uh, Jody's grandma had an 80th birthday party and we we had a big counter lunch down in South Australia and uh, one of our little nephews, they had one of those, you know those chocolate vending machines? And you put the money in and the things swing around and if everything goes right, the chocolate. Well, he got his hand up in 
right inside it and he actually got hold. He was only two or three. He got hold of some of the chocolate. But he was stuck. He was completely stuck in it. And they were trying to loosen him for some time before they realised the reason he was stuck is because he had hold of the chocolate. And if he could let go of the chocolate, he'd get his arm out. (laughs) But he wouldn't let go of the chocolate. (laughs) Yeah. If we want to be free from the slavery of money, we've got to let it go. That's what it's saying. Yeah. Because actually, in the end, the love of money will bring all sorts of pain and hardships and misery. Refuse the mark of the beast and be happy for the consequences that flow from that. Because the consequences is trusting in God alone. And that is better. Do you get that? Now, this is a huge subject, and I know I have no way dealt with this properly. John says, though, this calls for wisdom. And I want to encourage you to think about this. Yep. Uh, Keep the conversation... Talk about this. But I want to finish by saying this. Who is like the Lord? All of this is senseless unless we can see God is absolutely magnificent. He is wonderful. He is glorious. Beyond, I mean, just talking about him, you get the music, you get music comes along and brings, brings that point to life. Do you understand? Yep, and it keeps going too. Okay, God is, he is amazing and satisfying and wonderful and he is beyond anything this world could offer. It is a pathetic thought that your power or anything through anything this world designs could be above him. He is altogether beautiful. Do you know that? And his son, Jesus, is more wonderful than anything else in this world. Like all the cash in this world is not worth anything compared to our Saviour Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Do you know that? He has restored us to the holy, living, wonderful God. That's what Jesus has done. That is worth more than anything else. And at the end, when, when Judgment Day comes, that will be the only thing worth claiming. I know Jesus and I know what he's done for me. He's forgiven all my sins. You understand? Yeah, you can't take it with you when you go. That's what Paul said. And you can't. And it's worthless before God. Because if you rock up before God and you say, well, I don't know about this Jesus thing, but man, I've got some wealth. It's not going to be pretty. He is above all. He is altogether wonderful. Who is like the Lord? He has removed from us the stain of our idolatry. He's forgiven all of that. Jesus took the punishment for our idolatry and our love of this world on the cross. He did. He took all of that so that we might be free to what? To love him, to worship him, to know him, to live in a relationship with the most wonderful being, indescribable God. And we can know him as father. Who is like the Lord? Hold him higher than anything in this world. Yes, the devil's at work in this world. True. Yep, the world is opposed to God. True. The second beast. Yep. But our answer is to look to the magnificent God and see that in him, whether we've just got our food and our clothing or whatever we've got, we've got everything we could ever want. 
Do you get that? And if you put your trust in other things today, well, repent. It means turn away from them and turn to Jesus. Turn to God. If, you, if you've worshipped other stuff, drop it. Repent. Turn to him and trust him alone for everything because he is our everything. Psalm 18, I'll just finish by this. Psalm 18 says this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. He's my strength. The Lord is my rock. And my fortress, he's my security. And my deliverer, he's the one who saves me. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. He's the place where we hide and we have full safety and security and peace of mind. My shield and the horn of my salvation. That means the strength of my salvation. My stronghold is what? It's God alone. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from all my enemies. This is our God, who is like the Lord. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that you would quite simply make this uh, sensible to us, what we've heard today, apply it to our lives and make us love you more than we ever have before. I pray that we would find all of our peace, all of our joy, all of our pleasure in you and, Father, that the things of this world would fade back to where they should be, that we would honour them, but, Father, we would never worship them, trust them, or put anything in them that we shouldn't. I pray that you would make this real to us and make us alive in you to love you and you alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.